0: Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben ohara Burr. Today, why we have so much trouble ignoring our smartphones and how we can try to break free. A Vancouver man turns an ALS diagnosis into a rallying cry to raise awareness about his disease. First, we look into a tragedy in Manitoba as the bodies of four people, including an infant, are found near the Canada-US border, suspected to have died trying to cross into the US on foot on a frigid night bodies of four people, including an infant, were found in a field this afternoon in a remote area near the town of Emerson. That's about 100 kilometres due south of Winnipeg. It is suspected they died from exposure while attempting to cross the border into the U.S. on foot. Here's RCMP Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy, the RCMP's commanding officer in Manitoba.
1: You'll also note that I am using the term victims. And that's on purpose. We're very concerned that this attempted crossing may have been facilitated in some way and that these individuals, including an infant, were left on their own in the middle of a blizzard when the weather hovered around minus 35 degrees Celsius, factoring the wind. These victims face not only the cold weather but also endless fields, large snowdrifts, and complete darkness. We don't know how these individuals got to Emerson but our investigators are certainly going to look into every aspect of their deaths.
0: That was Brenda McClatchy. She's the RCMP's assistant comm- or Jane McClatchy, rather, the RCMP's assistant assistant commissioner in Manitoba. I'm joined more na- for more now by Global's Brittany Greenslade. Brittany, thanks so much for being here.
2: Hi, thanks, Ben. Good evening.
0: I mean, it, it's h- kind of hard to put into words exactly what unfolded this morning. But, but just perhaps take us through how you found out and, and what happened from there.
2: Yeah, Ben, it's been a, a really horrifying and tragic day as we learned the news of this this morning. Uh, the RCMP here in Manitoba said uh, out of release and had a press conference this morning, nobody knowing exactly what was going on, just knowing that there was some sort of incident happening near the Manitoba border down towards the United States. Now, as we know now, the bodies of a man, woman, a baby were found together and the body of a teenage boy just a few meters away. Now, as you heard from RCMP Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy, these were difficult terrain temperatures. Anybody that has been to this area of the prairies, these are wide open swaths of fields. It is frigid, frigid temperatures here in the prairies right now. We are reaching below minus 35 in, in temperatures, and we, and we did have a blizzard. And these people are believed to have died from exposure to that freezing weather while attempting to walk across the border from Canada to the United States. Now, this really all started taking place yesterday uh, morning around 9.30, and that's when members of the RCMP integrated border enforcement team were alerted by U.S. Customs that they'd apprehended a group that had crossed into the U.S., from Canada near the town of Emerson. And U.S. officials had said that one of the adults that they had apprehended had items that were meant for an infant, but there was no baby with the group. And that's really what set them off, that they might need to be looking for somebody else. Now, in court documents, this group had said that uh, there was a family of four who'd asked them to hold a backpack. It had uh, baby clothes, a diaper, and some toys. And so that's really when this search Started, And it wasn't until about one thirty on the Canadian side of the border, about 10 kilometres east of Emerson, uh, about a dozen metres from the border, that RCMP eventually found the four bodies.
0: Brittany, from what we're understanding from those American court documents, um, there is someone under arrest tonight. Can you explain a bit more about that?
2: yeah late this afternoon we got a release from the u.s attorney's office for the district of minnesota that a 47 year old man named steve shan from florida had been arrested and is now charged with human smuggling in connection with this incident now before those bodies were discovered in manitoba police had actually stopped this individual steve shan driving a 15 passenger van about a kilometer south of the border uh, between two different points of entry and he was driving with two passengers that these border officials determined were undocumented foreign nationals from india and inside that vehicle they found plastic cups bottled water juice snacks and as they were being taken back to border patrol police actually came across five more Indian nationals just south of the border. And it was this group of five that had, They had been found with this backpack full of of children's stuff, and they said that it belonged to a family of four that they'd lost contact with in the evening, and that's why they ended up uh, alerting Canadian RCMP to go and search. And this group had said they'd been walking across the border, that group of five, expecting to be picked up by someone, and they estimate they'd been walking in the cold for more than 11 hours. We know two of them had very serious injuries and ended up having to be transported to hospital.
0: I'm speaking with Global's Brittany Greenslade about the discovery of four bodies uh, today on the Manitoba U.S. border. Um, the bodies of a family, we presume, uh, who were died of exposure trying to cross the border on foot. I imagine the, the operating theory here is that this group was separated as they tried to make that crossing or as they made the crossing.
2: Yeah, according to the information that we have from those court documents, when uh, police came across that group of five that were walking, uh, they had said they had been with this group before and they got separated at some time uh, within the, the, the few hours prior to this. But it sounds like the group had been walking together. And it also sounds like this wasn't the first time this had happened with this individual that police now have under arrest.
0: Do we have any idea of how they were equipped to make this this journey? i had read one place where they were kitted out in some sort of cold weather uh gear but certainly not enough to withstand those kinds of temperatures or at least not easily
2: yeah i can tell you ben i've lived in manitoba for 10 years and when it hits Mm -hmm. temperatures of minus 35 minus 40 if you're walking for 11 hours it doesn't really matter what you're wearing um but we do know from these court documents that that group of five individuals that were found walking that's presumed to be all part of this uh collection were actually in you know black in color, new winter coats with fur-trimmed hoods, black gloves, black balaclavas, insulated rubber boots. But we do not know what that family of four was wearing. Um, Police have not released those details in particular to that group. But they all seemed, according to these court documents, the two that were in the vehicle and the five that were walking seemed to have very similar outfits along with the man that was arrested as well.
0: Just a few more quick questions, Brittany. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I gather this isn't common for people to be crossing from Canada into the U.S. At least not compared to what we were seeing here, a few years back.
2: No, definitely not, Ben. For for the most part, what we've reported on here in Manitoba and, and across Canada have been the asylum seekers that have really coming been coming in years past from the United States into Canada. And back in 2017, this was really prevalent across Canada. There was More than 20,000 asylum seekers uh, that had crossed the borders, uh, mainly in Quebec, Manitoba, and B.C., but to get into Canada. And, you know, on one weekend here in 2017, we saw 22 of those people coming across. But to see people going the other way is really rare. It's not something we've seen very often. I can tell you from the court documents um, with the U.S. attorneys that name Mr. Shand in this complaint They are saying, according to one of the border patrols, that recently they've seen three separate incidents of human smuggling in this very same location where Mr. Shand was arrested. They've seen the boot prints, one of those just, you know, as early as January 12th, and a couple of other cases occurring in December. So this is the latest information that we're receiving from the U.S. tonight on cases going into the United States. As I said, it's not something we've reported on often over here over the past few years, it's very often been the other way of people coming north to Canada.
0: And I gather Mr. Shan makes another court appearance on Monday.
2: Yes, he will be in court again, and obviously this is something we're going to be following very closely. We do know that he is a Florida resident, and from what we've been able to gather from court documents, he's originally from Jamaica, and uh, we are going to be watching those court cases very closely and following along this case as it goes through the system.
0: Global's Brittany Greenslade, thank you so much for sharing your time tonight, for sharing what you know about this tragedy today in Manitoba. Thanks so much, Ben. Ben. A Florida man is in custody tonight in the U.S. after the bodies of four people, including an infant, were found in a field in a remote area near the town of Emerson, Manitoba. That's about 100 kilometers due south of Winnipeg. It is suspected they died from exposure while attempting to cross the border into the U.S. on foot and part of a larger group. A tragedy like this raises many questions, many of which won't be answered tonight. Still, with more on what we can understand, I'm joined by Laurie Wilkinson, a professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology at the University of Manitoba and an expert on immigration and refugees. Thank you for being here, Laurie. Thanks for having me. I mean, it must be a difficult day for anyone who pays close attention to these sorts of issues. You know, we see so much about these tragedies overseas in places like the Mediterranean. But today, a reminder that this happens much closer to home, too.
3: Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we often forget about that as Canadians and and not realize that it does happen on our borders as well.
0: Um, as tough as it can be to try to put this tragedy into any kind of context, um, when you heard about it what what runs through, this morning what ran through your mind about what may have happened
3: well i mean after you you know come to terms with the fact that there was an infant and a teenager involved in this
4: yeah.
3: you got to kind of think to yourself you know why were they moving at this time <laughs> and who convinced yeah. them that it would be safe to do so and you know Wednesday night here in Manitoba it was very cold and the wind was blowing quite a bit so that, you know, visibility would have been terrible. So, you know, people born in Canada probably wouldn't venture out for such an activity. So um, you kind of got to wonder about that.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, you know this. You, I mean, what would in what circumstances would someone in this country take that kind of risk to cross into the United States? And I know it's speculation, but hypothetically, what what situation would you find yourself in where that was your option to get into America?
3: You know, often we hear reports about people trying to reunite with their family. So it's really difficult to migrate anywhere, and especially as a larger family unit. So, you know, Um, people do what they can to get out of the situations that they're in in order to get to a place like Canada or the United States, then they find themselves separated by a border. (laughs) And uh, then they have to go through an immigration process again. And we know that um, families, the, the pull to be with your family for many people is very strong And um, I suspect that in, and we know this in many cases too, there was a case in um, Canada a few years ago where a woman in her 50s was crossing from the U.S. to Canada and it was an unnaturally cold night. I think it was in May and she died of hypothermia. She was coming to Canada to meet her new grandbaby. So, you know, this pull to be with our families um, is very strong. Um, there are other pulls as well, but um, but this is one that doesn't get spoken of very
0: often. I'm not sure how much you can speak to this, but tell me about the organized human smuggling aspect of this and how it comes into play. Uh, in, in a place like Emerson, Manitoba, which is remote,
3: Well, um, human trafficking comes in many forms, but about a third of all the human trafficking cases in Canada involve international smuggling of people across the border, whether it's the Canada-U.S. border or it's, um, you know, by plane or or, um, boat. Um, That number seems to be going up. Um, but it's about always immigration related issues tend to be about a third of all of the trafficking cases that are um, that are found in Canada. Because, of course, we don't find all the trafficking cases either. <laughs>
0: When you looked at what unfolded today, and we understand from court documents, and we were just speaking to Brittany Greenslade of Global as well about uh, about what unfolded today. And we understand that in those documents, they believe that this may have been done before. They had found other boot prints um, in, earlier this month or last week um, in that same area. What is it with, with looking for those vulnerabilities, despite how, I mean, anybody who knows this country knows crossing a border on foot in Manitoba in January is is not safe? How do human smugglers approach these these vulnerabilities within our very large border?
3: Well, I think you know smugglers prey on people people's vulnerability, and so you know, first of all, they might assure people, "Oh, it's safe. Everybody does this. It's not a very long walk." and um, and and you know, in the winter time, I would imagine a smuggler's business is maybe a little small smaller, and so maybe they feel like you know, if they find a person who is interested in coming at this time of year, it's a good time to get people across. Um, just because most just of them are be, doing it just simply for the money.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, just briefly, as you look ahead to what we may figure out about this, what are you interested in finding out now about this case, and 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 how it plays into the broader picture of uh, of these sorts of you know these sorts of cross border attempts?
3: Well, I think probably what we will find with this case is that it's not much different than some of the other cases that we already know about. Um, there's you know, definite reasons that people need to be in this case in the US Mm -hmm. and couldn't find themselves in the US uh, for one reason or another. And so, you know, I think from a government perspective, it wasn't so long ago that, you know, even the Canadian government used to put a priority on um, reuniting families. Um, In the 1980s and 1990s, they put a lot of priority to, you know, in the immigration scheme of things. And I would like both of our governments to step back and really think about, like, why people feel that they need to flee their country in the first place. And then what we can do as governments to make sure that um, their integration and resettlement into Canada or the U.S. is facilitated which means facilitating family reunification.
0: Laurie Wilkinson, University of Manitoba professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminology. Thank you so much for your uh, for your time tonight.
3: Thank you for having me on.
0: It is no exaggeration to say that a diagnosis of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or ALS means you're living on borrowed time. There is no cure for the progressive neurodegenerative disease, also referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease. An estimated 3000 Canadians live with ALS at any given time. 1000 die each year. Greg Gao, lawyer, husband, dad, baseball coach was diagnosed with ALS in 2019, but he's taken that diagnosis as a rallying cry to fight to raise awareness, about ALS and to fight for more resources for research and treatment. He and his wife, Adrienne, join me now from North Vancouver. Welcome and thank you so much for taking the time tonight.
5: Oh, thank you, Ben. Thanks for having us.
0: For listeners not familiar with ALS or your story and the impact that a diagnosis of ALS can have, perhaps you could take us back to May of 2019.
5: Yeah, for sure. Um, The diagnosis for Greg came on very quickly Uh, He was a healthy man, um, very healthy man. We were both an active family. And, uh, you know, we had just been on a ski trip the month before as a family. Uh, He came home and started feeling some weakness and tingling in his arm. And uh, very shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed. Uh, You know, he had an eight and a six-year-old at the time. uh, And we were, as a family, really living in the prime of our lives, you know, we're, we're living a, a perfect life, so to speak. Um, you know, if we flash forward to now, um, it doesn't take long with this uh, disease to progress. He can no longer use his arms and legs. He can't walk. Um, he has a feeding tube hanging out of his stomach. Um, and just recently, he's really not able to
0: speak much.
5: So yeah. it's, it's, it's really devastating.
0: I know I I, I Greg and do and, and you have a have a Twitter account at Greg Gao which has really documented a lot of what's what what, he, what you've been going through and it's and it's so informative for those of us who aren't fully aware of the impact of ALS. Um, so always thank you for sharing that because it really has been a lot of insight into into just how devastating it is.
4: I AM. My with my eyes. Yeah. So Greg said he's very happy.
5: Again, he's able to type with his eyes. So before he was able to use his phone, but um, has since lost the functioning in his, his hands. So through I technology, uh, he's now able to tweet, and it really allows him, um, you know, in a roundabout way, to have a voice again.
0: Yeah, for our listeners, that's at Greg Gao, G R E G G O W E on Twitter, and I highly recommend you have a look. Um, as you both discovered after this diagnosis, there were very few resources available to help—at least not close to home.
5: Yeah, um, you know this this diagnosis is especially hard for people uh, because there's no treatment um, as it stands right now that that can fix things. There's no treatment plan that's given to you when you walk into a doctor's office and you're, you're given this diagnosis. And that's, I think, the hardest blow uh, once you're diagnosed. It's a complete shock, given that you're healthy, but then to have no treatment plant is just, um, it just gives you the biggest sense of hopelessness. So um, thankfully, there were clinical trials offered elsewhere in Canada, um, not in BC, but um, Greg and I were able to fly to Montreal and then Edmonton um, over the last two, two and a half years to take part in clinical trials, which, you know, were deemed not um, super successful, but they do give a patient hope. So I, we traveled, I think, almost 20 times in the last two and a half years um, to take part in clinical trials.
0: I've read that one of the enemies when it comes to to raise fighting to raise awareness about ALS is time. Uh, there just isn't time. By the time your diagnosis arrives, the time to advocate just seems to go. What, in your case, as a couple, prompted you to take this time to fight?
5: Want to answer that, Greg?
4: Yeah, um, the first uh, nine months ago, I was um, digesting the diagnosis, and we were making me memories with our family.
5: Yeah, the first nine months, he was really, we were making memories as a family and he was digesting the diagnosis. Yeah.
4: But then um, things were so big and um, hopeless that I and many others decided to now was the time to find, and we were that a man named Brian Wallach in the U.S. started a movement. He's saying, you
5: know, he he and a few others um, really felt the need for patient advocacy, and he heard about a gentleman in the United States named Brian Wallach, who was starting an ALS movement. Um, through patient advocacy. So he realized, you know, it wasn't just about himself anymore and about his own family. He really needed to contribute to the larger picture. And, um, yeah, he, he looked outward and asked what he could do to help end this disease.
0: I'm speaking with Adrian and Greg Gao this evening. Greg was diagnosed with ALS in 2019. We're talking about his decision, their decision, to to fight, to rally, to uh, raise awareness about ALS and to ask for more funding, for more research and, and funding closer to home. We're seeing some progress. I know the gentleman you just mentioned, we saw a new U.S. bill, I gather, signed into law late last year here in B.C., some successes, some commitments. Are you seeing the kind of progress that you had hoped for at least... Optim- you know, uh, uh, realistically, are you seeing the progress you'd hope for?
5: Yeah, you know, I think in the, the US and the UK, they've just recently made huge, huge uh, contributions to ALS. Uh, just before Christmas, um, Biden signed an act for ALS um, with 100 million per year uh, for five years for research. And in the UK, you um, they've contributed 50 million pounds over five years. So that's tremendous internationally in Canada. um, We haven't yet seen it. And I think that's where Greg really, really wants to be a voice um, because a lot more needs to be done both in our own province, but also federally as well. It's time that we, you know, step up um, and that everyone in government steps up and makes ALS a priority. It's been around too long um, and to not have any kind of treatment plan at this point um, is heartbreaking and, and devastating to families.
0: Where is where is the snag? Do you find in this in this country where where is the problem?
4: Greg, do you want to answer that? Yeah, there is um, only a few exceptions. No burden, government funding. There is no government funding for research? And the plan is a, is a federal the the way the people with so
5: our federal and our provincial drug approval process uh, takes way too long, uh, especially for people with ALS. Like you said, there's just no time.
4: For example, seven months <laughs> ago. And
5: then are still on their desk. So a drug was submitted to Health Canada seven months ago, and it's still on their desk. And seven months have passed, and you know some ALS patients don't even get those seven months to live. Um, they're dead by the time they even look at it.
0: I wanted to leave the last word to the two of you, and um, just what you'd like people out there to know about ALS, the diagnosis and where that leaves you and what kind of help is needed.
4: And then um, I've never seen it. my no-life but this is a time i in the UK and I can on board and will will have a uh, generation
5: yeah, he said, this is a devastating disease, but if Canadians can get on board, um, you know, this is really an unprecedented time of hope. Uh, we can create a movement uh, to end this disease. You know, we can go to our governments and and advocate and push. Uh, that's what it takes uh, to get the funding and get the research going.
0: Greg and Adrian Gao, thank you so much for your time this evening. I was reading some of the, I know you tweeted that you were going to be on the show tonight and the responses about your courageousness and and your tenacity um, are certainly inspirational. So thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners this evening. Thanks
5: for your time, Ben.
0: Joining me now is Dr. Larry Rosen, Professor Emeritus of Psychology uh, in the Department of Psychology at California State University, Dominguez Hills, and author of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World. I found this a really interesting challenge after I read an interview you did recently, and that was describing the iPhone. How do you describe an iPhone to someone who had never seen one before?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, an iPhone isn't everything. It's, it's all it's all. It's everything. I mean, if you think about it, it's we don't really use it as a phone anymore. It's a camera. It's GPS. I mean, on and on and on. Plays music. Every everything. It it is one of the things that you know in the distracted mind we call a major game changer. Yeah, I mean, when I
0: think back to when it was first introduced, and I think I may have been punching away at a BlackBerry at the time. uh, But when I think back to when, as we most of us were back to you know, fifteen years ago. I guess it was impossible to imagine what would have been unleashed that day.
1: Well, it's interesting because I was on a, I was on a BlackBerry and I, I had had it for quite a while, I guess, and I did not like the keyboard at all. Um, and all of a sudden, this magical instrument comes out that solves not only that problem, but everything. And so I'm one of the early adopters. Um, I got the iPhone 1 and um, I, I fell in love with it. I've, I'm on my Probably sixth iPhone or something. Although I do wait until, until it's um, accepted by the public.
0: <laughs> Given your uh, your background, the research you do, when you got the first iPhone, back when, did you right away recognize that this was going to be something very different?
1: Yeah, I'm one of those Apple Apple people. So I started with, I mean, I started with a Radio Shack eighty way back, and then and then the Apple IIe and then the Macintosh, and. And I think the Macintosh environment really helped me deal with the iPhone environment. Um, I think it, was, uh, it, it made it easier to conceptualize, although it was different. I mean, I remember thinking, how are people going to learn this thing? This is, this is really complicated. There's lots of things to tap and do this and do that. Turned out six, six-year-olds could do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I mean, they sold the adoption of them was remarkable. The adoption of smartphones in general, when one thinks back to sort of, I think back to the, again, the Blackberry, those Nokia, you know, flip phones, the adoption of smartphones was, was seemed like it was almost instantaneous over the course of a few years.
1: Right. Which is why the smartphones were a major game changer Um, because basically it came out and like most technologies, you know, you expect it to kind of, kind of dance up a little bit slowly until it gets a critical mass of people. This one just shot up. And people were loving it. But if you have to think back, the iPhone 1 was basically a phone and an email system and maybe a Safari, I think, back at the beginning. I don't think, I don't hmm. think it was. I don't even remember if there was text messaging back then.
0: It is remarkable to think back how much they've changed. But you pointed out, and it's been pointed out, that, that like the BlackBerry, that it was kind of a business tool. You know, people used to make fun of journalists for having their heads down on, in their Blackberries at international meetings and so on. And then I realized just a few years later, everybody had their heads down on their phones. Like suddenly, it was everywhere you look, People were walking around with their heads down in their phones. Um, well, it's, it's even worse now. I mean,
1: absolutely. I, I am a people watcher, and I have found the funniest places that people are on their phone because they're on them everywhere. Everywhere. I saw a few people just walking down the street, and they were walking a dog, and they both were on their
0: phones. Now, I don't know if they were on their phones to each other. Yeah, That would be, you never know. I mean, I know people who tweet, you know, couples that tweet at each other. You know, it's, it's using their phones, obviously. Um, you've looked into this and, and you describe it quite, quite poetically, actually, our relationship with the screen. It says we can't help ourselves because they've helped themselves to our brains already. They've hijacked our brains. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Sure, Um, it's interesting when you talk about screens, we open it up a little bit more because we're not just talking about the iPhone now, we're talking about the typical kind of things that have a screen, which is everything right now. And so part of what what I've been studying and part of what is very interesting to be in this area is I've been studying the changes that have happened in the last say 10 years, 15 years. I've been working on this since 1984 before there were phones at all. but what's interesting is it is spiraling out of control now, literally spiraling out of control. And it's not just the phone anymore; it's the tablets, it's the laptops, it's everything. And, and we've looked at all of these kind of devices, and we lump them all as as smart devices and smart screens. But we're surrounded by them all the time. I mean, you can't go anywhere; you can't get in your car without a smart screen anymore. Um, I mean, it's just we're surrounded by them, and they're very tempting because they basically call you. <laughs> they, well, we find out that, that people leave notifications on their phone, which I don't have hardly any. They have 110 per day. And these are, these are typical millennials, so in their 20s and 30s, 110 notifications per day. And they're on for about six hours a day. Just a couple of years ago, that was about two and a half hours a day. So it's just like I said, it's just spiraling out of control
0: so we've gone from two and a half hours a day on average on our phones to six hours a day on our phones. Yeah. yeah. And and what's remarkable with that is that it's not as if we're spending more time per visit. Is that right?
1: No, it's interesting. It's, it's not, it's, it's (laughs) exactly opposite of what you think we're spending less time. What we do is we, well, and this is, this is what we watch people do is they'll take their phone and they'll either get a beep and, and then click on whatever beeped them. And they'll look at it for a second and then click the phone off. And then they'll say, decide in their brain that they've got to go to whatever, whatever site, Snapchat, or let's we'll use Snapchat. They go on Snapchat, they do something quickly and they get off. They're spending you know, just a couple of minutes on each time. But if you add up those couple of minutes over time, they're spending a tremendous amount of time, but very short, brief times, which is why we get very distracted, by the way.
0: Right. And you spoke about that as being perhaps the the root of the problem is the, is the idea that we can no longer go without being distracted by our phones. We're almost...
1: Nope. And yeah. we're not very good at multitasking, by the way. I mean, people claim they're really good at multitasking. They are not. And if you watch people, say, watching television at night, they have a second screen with them. And there's no way you can, you can keep flipping back and forth from the, the second screen that you've got to the television that you're watching back and forth. You're going to miss most of it. I always challenge people um, to try to watch one of those shows that has the, 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 the thing on the bottom, the scroll, the scroll bar. And right. try to look at the scroll bar and listen to the speaker, but read it and then do the opposite. And you, you just can't do it. You can't do it. Your brain's made to focus totally on one thing at a time unless both are very simple tasks. I mean, we can walk and chew gum, for example. Um, You've made some really interesting
0: arguments about what needs to be done because it feels like it, because it is an everything device, it feels like there are just about everything solutions. Is it a public health issue? Is it up to self-regulation? Should the government government be regulating it? What should we do? Um, What are some of the things that you've recommended that you feel that should be done in the near term to try to... um, maybe try to put this genie back in the bottle as much as humanly possible.
1: Well, uh, I'm gonna take the iPhone for an example in this, but the, the um, screen time that measures your screen time, basically everybody ignores it. Um, within screen time, you can put it on don't, do not disturb very easily. And that is something you can do. Um, but one, the first thing you can do is just look at the screen time data. It collects data one day at a time, and then it's, after seven days, it re- resets itself and starts again. And I think people will be appalled at, A, how much time they spend on their phones, because that's clocking it, and B, where they spend that time, because it's showing which apps they go to first, which apps they spend time on, how much time, and wh- where they get notifications. So one of the things I tell people first is to stop the notifications. You just don't need them anymore. Um, and it, it's one of the stimuli, it's almost visceral. When the, when the phone buzzes or beeps or whatever you're doing, it's almost like you get this little jolt in you. And that jolt is, is real, by the way. It's real biochemical jolt. And it, it leads you to do something. So the first thing is just turn off all the notifications. Read the screen time religiously. See where you are. Help see if it helps you reduce your time. In terms of focus and attention, which has been one of the things that I've worked on for a long time, um, what I recommend is you is when you are working on something, that you need to to pay attention to for long periods of time. We can't do that. Our attention span is short and shorter and shorter and shorter. We're looking at maybe a 10-minute attention span now, 15 minutes if we're lucky. So what I recommend people do is do something we call a tech break. Kind of you're turning it around. So what you do is when when you're sitting down to do a task, whether it's to write a report, write an article, study for a test if you're a student, what you do is you check everything on your phone, And then you eliminate everything that you don't need. So, for example, if you're on your laptop and your phone at the same time, you close all of the screens on your phone, on the window that you don't need, on the laptop that you don't need, and close all of them, flick them away on your iPhone. Then set set it for 15 minutes and silence it, turn it upside down, and put it in front of you. Now, what that does is it sends a stimulus to your brain that says... Hey, don't worry. You'll get to me within 15 minutes. It's like talking to your head. Yeah. Um, and so when the, the alarm rings at 15 minutes, you set it for one minute. You give yourself one minute, check on all those calls that have come in, whatever's come in, and then start it again. So 15, one, 15, one, until the 15 minute alarm rings and you go, oh no, no, I got to finish this sentence. I got to do this. Now, you know, you've got it. Now you jerk, take it up to 20, 25, 30. If you can get up to 30 minutes with a one or two minute break after you're winning. Um, It's hard to do though.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about essentially weaning yourself off your phone. And also, I think if I hear you right, admitting that we're actually too weak to do it without a lot of effort.
1: We are, we are. And then there's one more thing that's really important actually too. One is you have to tell everybody you're doing this because otherwise they'll text you. And then when you don't text back immediately, they'll start ranting and raving. Why are you ignoring me? Um, the other thing is to consider what you're doing in your bed at night prior to going to sleep. Um, the, the consensus with the National Sleep Foundation and others is that you really should put your technology, any screen technology that you use close to your face away an hour before bedtime. And the reason for that is because the technology is so good, it, it looks like white light is coming out, but it's actually in the blue light spectrum. And blue light tells the brain to, to kick the adrenal adrenal gland into action and to deposit cortisol into your brain. Well, cortisol is what wakes you up. The other thing it does is it tells the pineal gland, hey, knock off the melatonin, stop the melatonin. So now you've shut down the melatonin and you've increased the awakening cortisol and now you're up and running. So the idea is, is to get those get that blue light away from you. Um, People often ask me, by the way, if television's okay. And I say, yeah, as long as it's not in front of your face, because if you get about two feet away, the blue light's not going to bother you. I mean, the problem I have is I read on
0: my phone, I watch TV on my phone, I watch movies on my phone, uh, you know, I read library books. So essentially I have trouble putting it down because so much of, and I think a lot of us are in that situation. We've, we've uploaded so much of our entertainment onto the one device that we end up being beholden to it.
1: So for those people, what I, what I say is, okay, here's what you do. Make sure you hold your device about 16 inches away and then make sure that you dim the brightness. Because dimming the brightness dims the amount of blue light that's going to get into your eye. And if you really want to go all the way, you go to one of the things, um, I think on the iPhone, it's night switch or something. I forget what it is. Um, But what you do is you set that so that it starts in the morning with, with bright white light. And then as dusk comes at night, it starts to get a little darker and a little pinker. And the pink doesn't allow blue light. It's pink light, which is actually warming and comfortable and will keep the melatonin flowing.
0: One of the things that I found interesting too, is, is there's been a lot out there about new etiquette around using your phone and that societal pressure could be a way to keep people off their phones, at least part of the day. Um, and
1: this never works. <laughs> it never
0: works. Okay. Good. Good to know. Um, and one thing I did read is that, tell me a bit about the idea of, of, warnings a bit like we put on other things that can be potentially addictive
1: So I liken this to the same thing that we did with smoking and drugs. I think that what we need is a big, huge PR plan. I don't know who's going to do this, the government or somebody, just like like we had with smoking and drugs. Smoking, I mean, when I was raised, everybody smoked. Doctors smoked in their offices. Everybody smoked everywhere. What they did is they put warnings on the packages that it was going to hurt you. And slowly the smoking went down. Um, and eventually kind of plateaued at a very low level. It's hard to see other people smoking these days. It's, it's really strange. Um, what they do with drugs is the same thing. If you, if you remember, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, when they take that egg and put it into the hot pan and it sizzles. They need to do something similar, I think, in order to kick us out of this ever-increasing spiral up.
0: And yet, in some ways, it's also opened up the world to, to all kinds of good stuff, too. So that's, that's what I find so complicated about smartphones, is there, there's a lot of good in it, too, uh, at the same time. And you don't want to lose that, but at the same time, you're right. The, the addictive qualities of it are, are hard, to, hard to resist.
1: I went to an exhibition yesterday, a of, immersive of exhibition of Van Gogh which is touring the country and you go right. into this big room and there's Van Gogh pieces come up on the screen and they change constantly in the floor and everything. I'd say 40 to 50% of the people were taking pictures and not looking at it. And I found myself taking videos and I stopped, put my phone away and I just watched for a while. Boy, did that feel strange.
0: Yeah. If you don't take a picture, you weren't there. I, I know that's, I mean, that's, that, that's been, that's been, it never happened. is right? well, pick picker. It didn't happen. Yeah, picker. It didn't happen. The tree falls in the forest. Dr. Larry Rosen, professor emeritus of the psychology department at California State University Dominguez Hills, author of "The Distracted Mind: Ancient Brains in a High Tech World." Thank you so much for your insight tonight.
1: Thanks for having me.